name is Michelle. I'm an incredibly grateful member of the Worldwide Fellowship of Al-Anon and Alateen, and I am so pleased to be here with you. Thank you so much to the committee for asking me to come, and to Aaron and Jen. You guys have just been amazing. I love speaking in this area of the country. You guys are the warmest, kindest, most friendliest people anywhere. You got it. <laughs> So part of my recovery is I have learned to ask for what I need. And I'm going to speak from my heart this morning because what comes from the heart reaches the heart. So I'm going to ask you guys to please listen to me with your heart this morning. In the moment of silence before every meeting, I invite God to come and speak to me and through me. And I did that this morning, too. And I also have adopted kind of sort of a spot from the, the big book, the set-aside prayer. God, help me set aside everything I think I know about AA, about Al-Anon, about me, about my recovery, about everybody in this room, and most especially about you, God. And open me to receive what you want me to know about AA, Al-Anon, myself, my recovery, and most especially you, God. So let's just have another moment of silence, and I, and I would love for you guys to just get centered and recognize that who belongs here today is exactly who's supposed to be here today. And I have asked God to deliver the parts of my message just especially for you. So anybody who's heard me speak before, this is unique. Uh, you're going to hear some stuff probably because my story is my story that you've heard before. But whatever I deliver, whatever I don't deliver, I believe God's message is coming through me to you today. Thank you. I come from a quintessentially alcoholic home. My dad drank and my mom controlled. My dad was not my issue growing up. My dad, I don't know, like kind of instinctively as a child, like only a child can do, I kind of knew that there was something special about my dad. Like I always had compassion for him. Uh, my dad, it turns out that my dad came from a really hard background, and I didn't know that. Things were, things were kept from me. Um, all throughout my upbringing and even into my adulthood. In my family of origin, I learned that I was only as safe as my secrets. Uh, and my family taught me that by withholding information from me. My mom was really my issue. My mom was an untreated Al-Anon. My mom was an adult child of an alcoholic. And she passed a lot of those traits on to me. Now, my mom loved me, loved me. I know my mom loved me, but my mom's fear did an awful lot of damage to me as a child. My dad would say to her, don't let anything happen to her while I'm at work. And to my mom, that meant you can't, you can't, you know, you can't run. You can't do a tumble saw. Um, I would want to make my bed or things that, that grow a child's self-esteem. And my mother would, being um, a perfectionist, trying to keep herself safe in her family of origin. She learned to try to be perfect. So I would make the bed in a child's kind of fashion, and she'd come in, and she'd look at it very critically, and then she would remake the bed to show me how it was supposed to look. And what that did to me was it just eroded at my self-esteem. And it gave me the message that there was something wrong, that I just wasn't quite good enough. I heard the word can't a lot as a child. Um, you know, I wanted to be a veterinarian. Um, I wanted to be a lawyer. I wanted, I wanted to give, I wanted to stick up for the voiceless 
in society. And those were my passions. I believe that that was God's calling to me. But um, my mom cut her finger one time on the hymnal in church, and I fainted in the pew. Um, so, of course, what they said was, you can't be a veterinarian. You faint at the sight of blood. Now, you know, I can see in retrospect now how all that little layering on led me to the point that I was scared out of my mom, my mind when my mom cut her finger. Because as a child, oh, my God, she's going to die, you know. I was this nervous, jittery kid. So I wasn't fainting from the sight of blood. I was fainting from the fear that my mom, my untreated Al-Anon mom, was instilling in me. So, um, having been raised that way, um, I under underachieved. There was this skill set that I developed to keep myself safe in that alcoholic family. Um, I learned to be invisible. Um, I have a very quiet voice. You know, it's kind of hard when you're tall to be invisible, but I just did the best I could to fade into the background to keep myself from not being criticized, to keep myself out of the fray of the fighting and things that were going on in the household. Um, I learned to underachieve because if I underachieved, I could be perfect. Um, I learned uh, to plot my way out of my pain. So um, my, my guidance counselors wanted me to go to college. They saw potential there. They saw intellect there. And all I wanted to do was get in the business courses because that was my fastest way out of that house. So all of this layering on, what it did was it set me up to uh, be boring <laughs> and controlling. And um, my goal was always to find the exciting guy to complete me. Um, you know, I, I wasn't really happy with who I was. I didn't think there was anything I could do about that from all of those can'ts that I received from my mom. So I looked outside for the, the exciting guys. You know, and, and it set me up to look for the worst drinking, drugging, exciting, you know, womanizing alcoholic I could find. <laughs> <laughs> Plus it allowed me to... Um, to fulfill what I really thought was my primary spiritual aim in life was to help you <laughs> because I knew what was right for you. And my mom taught me that too because she was constantly correcting and redirecting so I learned to constantly be critical and redirect and, you know. So um, I met my husband in a bar. <laughs> and there were other guys, they were cute and they were interesting, but he was like really, really cutting edge, wild, my kind of guy, you know. Um, and, and he had a terrible reputation for, hmm, hmm. <laughs> um, I heard that he was good in bed and I wanted to find out. <laughs> I used to say, you know, don't tell my mom. <laughs> um, but my mom passed away, so I think she knows. <laughs> She's probably here right now. <laughs> so I live by this set of principles and um, married this guy. Well, actually... I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit. So so I met this exciting guy, and it turns out that he was even a little too exciting for me. So I figured I just want to get him in bed and, and see if he's as good as everybody else says that he is. And that was really my goal. The problem was that he fell in love with me. Like, that was not part of my plan. <laughs> I just wanted to play with him for a little while. So... <laughs> I know, you know, you look at people and like, you get like an idea of who they are. I bet you probably look at me and don't kind of get that idea. You know? 
and a little bit ahead in my story, I, 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 we had this family come and live with us, and it was such an amazing experience. And I had said to her, you know, people don't get me. They don't see me coming. And she was, like, kind of quietly watching us as we, you know, m- moved around the house the next couple of weeks. And she said to me, you know, the problem is that Kenny is all, like, liberal on the outside and conservative on the inside. And you're all conservative on the outside and liberal on the inside. So I cut off my hair. I got a nose ring. I changed my clothes. <laughs> but somehow I still give off this persona of like, you know, I don't know, the nunnery or something. So not true. <laughs> so um, I had um, I had a set of principles that I lived by um, that I didn't realize that I was living by. And they were the set of principles from my alcoholic upbringing and um, you know, like, my pre-Alanon third step was, like, go and let me. <laughs> um, and, um, like, I would totally take someone else's inventory, and my pre-Alanon fifth step was to be on the phone talking about you to everybody who would listen to me. Um, and, and this guy that I was dating, who had fallen in love with me, was just so majorly out of control. So I decided that I was going to break up with him, but being the really nice person that I was, he had invited me to his best friend's wedding. And, um, like, I didn't want to break up with him when I was his date to his best friend's wedding. So I was just kind of waiting in the wings while I watched him have a good time. And that was part of the MO of my life, you know. I just, I can't. So I'll just sit here and watch you, and that kind of feels good to live vicariously. So I'm watching him have this good time. He is totally distracted by the love of his life, Sambuca, Bud Light, whoever she was that night, you know. So he's doing his thing over there, and I'm watching, and I'm just like biding my time at the table by myself, waiting to break up with him probably the next day. So I'm, I finally got so mad at him because I was sitting by myself for so long that I decided I was just going to get a cab and go home. And I walked outside, and the streets were all black and dark. We were in Brooklyn. Um, and it was a late, late Saturday night. And that's unusual for that part of town to have been dark like it was, but, you know, what happens happens for a reason. So I couldn't get a cab. And somebody caught me outside, and I went back inside. And he sees me, and he said, I've been looking for you. I want you to meet my mom. So he brings me over to the bar where she's sitting, and he introduces me, and he says, Mom, isn't she pretty? And his mom said the magic words. She said, oh, yeah, Kenny, they all are. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And on the spot, God's honest truth, on the spot I decided I'm going to marry him. Because I'm different, and I'm special, and I can fix him, and they might all be pretty, but I am better than they are. So we got married, you know. He, had, he, he asked me seven times. I asked him once. Um, he asked me six times. I said no. Um, I asked him once. He said no, and then he asked me, and I said yes. So we got married, and um, the storm began. You know, because I recognized that his drinking was definitely an issue. And we talked about it before we got married. And he said, you know, we're having a good time now. We're engaged. All of our friends are around us. You know, as soon as we get married, I'll stop drinking. Okay. You know, and as a truth teller, painfully truth teller, I've learned to pull that back a lot in recovery. Um, My sponsor says the scalpel of honesty with the anesthesia of love, Michelle. (laughs) 
that's not nice. Yes, it's the truth, but, you know, and she says awful things to me like, um, just because you have an opinion doesn't mean you should give it, even if you're asked. What? <laughs> even if I'm asked, it's like an invitation for me to dispose, dispose my wisdom on him. So anyway, um, so we get married, and, you know, we're having this really good time. We get up the next day. We have this beautiful dinner. Like, it's, it's going really, really great. All of his attention is on me where it belongs. And, you know, we get on the plane, and we're flying to Barbados, the honeymoon that I paid for. Clue, you know, another clue. <laughs> and um, he wants to have a drink. And I'm like, you know, now, the, nah, 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 why do you have to have a drink? And we're just, you know, can't you wait? And we're on the plane, and blah, 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 blah. And he excuses himself, goes to the bathroom, comes back drunk. Like, <laughs> how do you do that in, like, three, I know that you were gone for three minutes, 20 seconds. <laughs> But he did it, you know, because he had to. I didn't realize that was his solution. I had no idea what I was dealing with. I didn't know he had a disease. I thought I was there to just, like, be the special one, be the good one, show him the error of the ways. He would listen, worship me forever. It was going to work out great. So, um, you know, we, we had another talk. <laughs> you said... You know, and uh, <laughs> you want to talk about precision. Like, I, 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 have a, I had an incredible, incredible memory, and I could recall the exact nature of his wrongs, like that, <laughs> or the promises that he made that he wasn't keeping to me, like that. You know, you said at this time and place, and this is where we were sitting, this is what you were wearing, and this is, this is what you said to me verbatim, that, you know, you were going to stop after we got married. We're married. Look, look, look. <laughs> time to stop. And... um he said to me, we're on our honeymoon. It's a party. We should, we're, I'm going to stop when we get home from the honeymoon. Oh, makes sense to me. Okay. So we had this great big party on our honeymoon. We had a wonderful time. We had a wonderful, wonderful time. We both drank a lot. Um, you know, it was part of what we did. I met him in a bar. You know, what were we doing? We were drinking. So, you know, we get home from the honeymoon, and um, he comes home drunk. You know, like... What are you doing? You said. <laughs> now the, the you said is building. You know, you said this and this and then, and you explained and I got it and I understood and I said okay and gave you permission to do it for that long and now time's up and now we're married and we're going to get serious here because marriage is serious. <laughs> and my husband has the most amazing sense of humor. He takes like the simplest stuff and he makes it hilariously funny. For instance, um, <laughs> I have like super good hearing, so when he was misbehaving, I, I would, if he was in a different wing of the house, now our house is 900 square feet upstairs and 900 downstairs, so it's not that big, but if he was doing something he wasn't supposed to do anywhere in that house, bing, you know, I heard that. <laughs> so one day he's in the other wing, and I'm in the kitchen, and I hear the noise, and I said, I heard that, and he said, you could hear a mouse piss on cotton. <laughs> That later became a line in a movie. He said it first, I swear. <laughs> and, um, and I wouldn't laugh because I was trying to make a point, you know. So he would, like, say all this funny stuff, and I'd be, like, crossing my legs and biting my cheeks, you know, because <laughs> I had to communicate to him by withholding laughter. I didn't know. You know, today I know that acceptance is not approval, but back then I didn't know that. So I thought by laughing or having relationship with him or not, you know, not, not talking to him for three weeks, you know, I thought all of that was communicating to him the seriousness 
of my knowing that he needed to stop doing the drinking because his solution was my problem. Didn't work out too good. So, you know, of course we, we carried on and decided, um, <laughs> we decided to move from Brooklyn, New York up to Dingman's Ferry, Pennsylvania. Um, Dingman's Ferry has a zip code and bars <laughs> and nothing, trees. You know, nothing else. We live in the woods, 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 woods. So we move, you know, <laughs> like Don said last night, darkity dark, dark, dark. <laughs> when my mother-in-law first came up there, you know, we brought her up, and she was, she was like, it's really dark up here at night. <laughs> There's like no lights. There, the stars, but you got to look up to see those. So we move up there, and he's still working in Brooklyn. You know, duh, the perfect solution. Get her out of the way so I can do what I need to do down here. So it's a matter of time before, you know, we're involved in our community, our church, et cetera. We go to see our pastor for me to report to our pastor the exact nature of my husband's wrongs. <laughs> I'm really, really good at that. And, you know... Um, Years before, a friend of mine who, she was my best friend, and her parents were in recovery, so she had a clue. And she said to me, I'm not going to listen to you complain about him any time, anymore unless you go to an Al-Anon meeting. So, uh, you know, I really wanted her to listen to me complain about him. So I went to a meeting. It was in Brooklyn, and it was this really, really big meeting. And I don't remember what anybody said or did other than their, the language of the heart was spoken. And they were putting the words together in this really weird way. It was still English, but I didn't understand like what that meant, what they were saying. But it still hit here, and I knew that I was home. And that was like mm, that was like 1982. Um, so I went to my first meeting. Unfortunately, after the meeting was over, the person sitting here turned that way. The person sitting here turned that way. And I looked around the room because I was looking for connection. I was looking for a hug. I was looking for the circle to widen and include me. And I went unnoticed. And I started to back up to the stairs to get out of the room. And I'm still looking around and still waiting for the connection. And nobody noticed me. And by the time I got to the stairs, I was running up those stairs to get out of that room. Because I didn't want you to notice notice me anymore. Because one of my pre-Alanon slogans was, um, you hurt me, I'll kill you. <laughs> and, uh, and I'll show you I'll hurt me. You know, and I didn't even know that that's what I was doing. But I knew you had something that I wanted, but I didn't want it anymore because you didn't notice me. And I ran out of those rooms, and I gave myself back to the family disease for six more years. And I always say that when I speak, and it was touched on this weekend as well. Those newcomers, they're the most important people in the room. You know, if you're new and I find out you're new, look out, because I'm like a hornet coming, you know. Welcome. What can I get for you? Do you want to talk? Can I give you a hug? Because it's so important to do that. So I backed out of the room. So, you know, here we are in our pastor's office, and, and I'm doing my fifth step on my husband. And he looks at my husband, and he says, you need to go to AA. And I was like, ha-ha. <laughs> and then he turned to me, and he said, and you need to go to Al-Anon. Oh, excuse me. Wait a second. First of all, I don't have a problem. No. Um, and secondly, I tried that. It's not for me. And he said the magic words that I needed to hear. He said, there's people from our parish who go to that meeting. You'll be surprised who you see there. Oh, all right. So I went to the first meeting so Kathy would listen to me complain. I went to my second meeting to see who was there because I was nosy. And 
But it, you know, it takes what it takes to get me in the chair. So I count my anniversary date from that. It was like um, October of '88, and I and I go to my real first meeting. You know, because it's not recommended that you have six years between meetings. <laughs> so um, this time it was a smaller meeting, and um, you welcomed me. You hugged me after the meeting. And one part of the welcome was, you know, we suggest you try six meetings. Like, they go through this whole little thing that they do. And at the very end, the chairperson said, and if you try, if you decide not to come back, we'll gladly refund your misery. And everybody laughed, and I laughed, and I was like, ah, how do you know? How do you know? How do you know I'm miserable? And I used to be able to say, now I know that you know I was miserable, because nobody says, yippee, I qualify for Al-Anon. Nobody. Until I met Alateens. They're yip yay. There's more people like us. There's people who I'm not alone. Yay. <laughs> They're just so much more relaxed and cool than we are. But I had, you know, everything on the outside looked just fine. You know, I always made sure that he looked good and that I kept those secrets. We were as safe as the secrets that I could ke keep. I, I would only talk to a select few people about the exact nature of his wrongs. And never, like you were cut off. You went on that, that pre-Alanon eight-step list, made a list of everyone who ever even looked at me wrong and asked God to kill them. <laughs> Sometimes slowly and painfully, depending upon how you hurt me or my loved ones. You'd go on that list, and Kenny was at the top, you know. You'd go right on that list, and I'd find somebody else who was safe enough to keep my secrets and listen to me complain, because I was a professional victim and martyr, martyr wah, 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 wah. <laughs> so I get in recovery, and I'm afraid to pick up the phone. You give me a phone list, you, you know, here's some literature. We'll see you next week. We only had two meetings in our area at that time, and I could only go to one. I'm in this active situation with this man. At this point, by this point, we have four children. So he's actively drinking. I've got these four little kids. I'm struggling to get to one meeting a week, still looking absolutely perfect on the outside because I am. You know, everything's just fine. And, you know, when, they, when I was at that first meeting and they read the steps, they read the right steps. <laughs> um, Still, my hands started to sweat on the table because there were references there about being powerless over alcohol and stuff like that. And I was like, <gasps> they don't think I'm one of them, do they? Like, you know, like it was some sort of awful disease, sinful. I had no idea. You know, today, I love drunks. I love them. And drunk has, drunks have become an intern of a, a term of endearment for me. You know, it, it used to be like, ew. Um, but now it's like... My heart, my, my, my fellows, I have such respect and such compassion. But back then I didn't know any better and I didn't want to be associated. So I kept going back and eventually I, I was able to find a sponsor um, who left recovery. But I did with her like I did with everybody else. My husband's actively drinking. I'm in Al-Anon. I've got one hand on this person outside of this room. I've kind of got one hand on somebody on the inside of the room. And what I used to do, because there was no me, because I was a shell of a person looking for your identity, your validation, I couldn't let go of one relationship until I had another. Whether that was a guy and a best friend or two best friends or two guys, whatever it was, I, as I was like getting rid of this one, I'd be cultivating that one over there. And I did the same thing in recovery. My sponsor left recovery, but I was still hanging on to her. Page 269, From Survival to Recovery. 
talks about what happens if, if, if we are Al-Anons in good standing. And it's akin to the promises in Alcoholics Anonymous. We don't call them promises in, in Al-Anon, but I call them our guarantees. And it says the veil will lift and you will perceive reality and recognize truth. Two and a half years in recovery, I'm standing in my kitchen cooking dinner, and my husband did something. My husband was a violent guy. And he would control us. No inanimate object was ever safe in our house. He would control us with intimidation and fear and violence. And he was never really sort of violent to me. He was a little bit violent to the kids. But one afternoon, he had come home, and he, um, our daughter wanted help with her homework. I'm cooking dinner, and I'm busy. So he says, come here, I'll help you. She was afraid of her dad. She was eight years old, our oldest daughter, and she should have been afraid of our dad. He was not a nice person. And he coaxed her, come on, come on, come on, come on, and finally, like, he's yelling at her and insisting, and this act is going on right here as I'm cooking in the kitchen. And when she finally got close enough, he grabbed the workbook, rolled it up, smacked her in the stomach, and she fell to the floor. Not in pain, but in fear of her dad. And at that moment, my veil lifted, and I perceived the reality of her fear, what we were living with. I recognized it. And another thing it says on that page, that I will stand for myself, but not against my fellows. And suddenly it just wasn't about him. It wasn't about getting him to stop drinking. It was about, that's not right. And the whiny victim of, I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't take it, I can't take it, I can't take it, I can't take him, I can't take his drinking, suddenly turned into, I won't. I won't. And I stopped what I was doing, and I said, we're leaving. And I gathered up the kids just real quick, you know, like right out the front door. And the first one out the door was the dog. The dog was probably like, I've been praying for this. I've been going, <laughs> I've been going to Alapup for like five years now. <laughs> We're finally out of here. <laughs> so we all get in the car. The cat gets in the car. I couldn't take the bunnies, but we get in the car. And I've got like this typical alcoholic car, you know, please start, please start, please start, please start. And the car starts and, you know, the duct tape is getting a little raggedy that's holding up the exhaust system and it's rattling and I'm driving out of the driveway and, and there I go. And, Back then, they didn't have cell phones, so I drove a couple miles to our ambulance corps that had a pay phone outside, and I called my sponsor who left recovery. And she taught me so many great things in those couple of years that we were in recovery together. One time, I called her to complain about him, and she said, stop right there. Do not use his name. You cannot use his name when you talk to me about him. And I said, how can I justify what I'm living with if I don't use the name of my husband? I would never let anybody else treat me this way. Hmm. And she said, you will not use his name. You will just talk about the offending behavior, and we're going to talk about where are you in all of this. Ugh. <laughs> no, that's a turn of events I wasn't anticipating. I really didn't go for that too much. But I followed the rules because I'm a rule follower, so fine, you know. And we can use semantics here, and I used to try to get around it so she knew why I could possibly be tolerating this unbelievable behavior. And, you know, we still got to the point where we needed to get and out the door I go. So I call her, and she said, we're having a birthday party. Come on over. 
So I drive a couple more miles over to her house, and we get out of the car. The dog runs in the woods and gets skunked. The cat is scared out of his mind. He goes up into the engine of my car to hide. Our youngest daughter had a seizure disorder. She has a seizure. Our son had a trach in place. It starts to bleed. And I was peaceful. I was peaceful. That peace beyond understanding. Because I was doing the next right thing. I was in God's will. And even though all of these things were going on and they were crazy things and I had just left this man that I was crazy about and loved and wanted to be married to so badly, I was okay. I was peaceful. And we walk inside and she opens the door. Come on in. We're having cake. Come on in and sit down. She taught me about appropriate boundaries. You know, that nine, if, you, if you have a 911 situation, call 911. But the usual things that I would want to, like pressing items, you know, he, it's 3 o'clock in the morning, you just got home, we're going to talk about your drinking right now. You know, and he's drunk, and we're going to talk about it right now, because this is a 911 issue for me, and you have to stop. And she taught me things like, you know, it looks like a 911, but we're all safe. You know, somebody's bleeding a little bit. We'll take care of that because his trach was bleeding. So I took care of that. And, you know, now we're going to have cake. And then we, the company left. She helped. I helped her clean up. We got the kids down and settled. And then we talked about what I was going to do next. And I had a clue about what was coming. And my people in recovery did wonderful things for me. Like, you're so afraid of the unknown. Um, do your research. Knowledge is power. You know, find out where you stand legally. Find out what would happen. You know, put things in place so that if you ever need them, they're there. Hang a set of keys by the door. Have a full tank of gas. You know, and, and sometimes when I work step one, I have to do it backwards. Unmanageability will talk to my power. Will, will, um, highlight my powerlessness. So I don't always recognize when I'm powerless, but I can unrecognize the manageability pretty quickly. And then I can manage the things that I can. So, you know, even for coming to the conference, I got gas the day before because at 2 o'clock in the morning in Dingman's Ferry, the one gas station we have isn't going to be open. You know, so I do what I can. So I had done what I could. I had contacted a lawyer already. I went through legal aid because that was the best that I can do, and I really didn't like that. But the truth is, I'm not really a very ambitious person. I'm pretty smart, but I would rather ride on your coattails than go through the trouble of doing it myself. So I blamed my finances, our finances, our position on him. So I went to legal aid, and I met this wonderful lawyer who happened to be in recovery. And she said, you know, um, we could draw something up if you ever wanted to press this, that, you know, you could get an order of protection, he could come back home if he does like a 90 and 90 or something like that. So I kind of had that rolling around back here. She said, so keep that in mind because there's a cycle of legal aid that goes around. And I'm not going to be assigned to you because I'm talking to you now. And by the time, whatever, you know, it turned out to be a very short period of time later that I took advantage of the legal aid. She said, it's not going to come back around. You're not going to get me. So I, I was upset about that because I bonded with her. I trusted her. She was a her for one thing. She understood. She was an alcoholic. She got it. And she got that I loved him and that I didn't want to do anything about it. She got that I wasn't ready yet. And who am I going to get who doesn't understand the family disease of alcoholism? So um, she said, you know, you've got to make this phone call and get this in motion. Because if I don't call early enough to get an order of protection from abuse then the spotlight comes here, and I become accountable, and I lose custody of the kids. So I made that very difficult phone call. 
And, you know, um, that veil that lifts shows so much other reality just than the violence that was in my life. When that veil lifted and I perceived reality and recognized truth, it showed me the evidence of God that had always been in my life, but I didn't have the eyes to see. And I made that phone call. And when I was assigned a lawyer, it was her. You know, is it odd? Is it God? Is it coincidence? Is it God incidence? I don't know. I don't know. But I choose to believe today. I choose to believe the footprint of God all around my life. I see it now. I can see it. And I'm interested in seeing it more and more and more in my life. So I look for it. I look for it in gratitude. I look for it by keeping an evidence of God list in my life. And I see him. I hear his voice. You know, I believe that intuition is what we connect to in prayer and meditation. And just like I was layered on, layered on, layered on by the family disease until you could not see who God intended Michelle to be, my intuition was layered on, layered on, layered on. And I lost the ability to hear God's voice. And all I could hear was the voice of the disease and the panic and the fear. But just like I see myself as a scratch-off lottery ticket and the disease layered on top, And you guys and all of the tools in recovery are the penny. And you scratch off, scratch off, scratch off. And there she is underneath the prize, who God intended Michelle to be. And she's a woman of quiet dignity and unassuming grace. Who knew that? You know, I'm in a bar looking for sex with some guy. You know, I'm a screaming fishwife trying to steal his solution. Quiet dignity and unassuming grace. You know, when I crawled into the rooms of Al-Anon, I was a shattered mess from the family disease of alcoholism. And all of the tools of recovery glued me back together again. And, and it does it for all of us. We all sh- are shattered. And recovery glues us back. And we become this beautiful mosaic. Nothing like that shiny vase before we shattered but still stunning and beautiful and bright. You know the fractures of light that occur from a mosaic when that light goes inside and it spreads all around the room in all the different patterns. And we are stunning and beautiful. Nonetheless. So I call and I get this lawyer and I get an order of protection from abuse. And my husband will tell you as part of his story, he was shocked. He was like the Michael Landon dad, you know. He had no idea that his behavior was unacceptable. You know, what becomes normal in the family disease, that that kind of behavior, it's like, what's wrong with that, you know, until the legal system gets involved and lets us know what's wrong. So it took a couple of weeks, and what happened for us was we were passed around from your house to your house to your house to your house, and we were over here for dinner, and we were over here for clothes, and we were over here sleeping and over here taking a nap. And this one helped me with the kids for school because that's what we do. And we were passed around, and unfortunately I had to bring the pets back home because people really weren't interested in having the skunk dog and the scared cat. You know? <laughs> so I had to bring them back home, and I was worried about their safety in this house with this man, an untreated alcoholism and the violence that was part of part of his disease, the layering on of his disease. So he got served the papers and a couple of weeks after 
um, we had left, we were, me and the kids were able to go back home. And I got it, I cleaned up the house and I got everybody settled in and tucked in. And I went in and I lit candles and I took a bath. And I was deeply, deeply sad. I was sad. And I was incredibly peaceful because I knew that I was in the will of God. I knew that I was going, I was going to be taken care of. I knew that God gave me you, God with skin, and I was going to jump in your arms those times when I couldn't walk by myself. So we wound up back in court, and that little girl, that little eight-year-old girl, you know, she just seemed so old. She was like my partner. She was eight. She was eight. And she was like a co-adult in our house as the oldest child. And we went into that courtroom, and I was teaching her a little, little tiny bit about recovery. And I was like, look at the architecture. Breathe in, breathe out. Be present. Let's not think about what's going to happen in a minute. And she's like picking at her hands. She was a nervous wreck. She's going to have to testify against her dad. And my lawyer said, the the judge isn't going to do that. The judge won't ask her to testify. But he put her on the stand and swore her in before he stopped the process. And it was one of those times when I... You know, forget to exhale. I'm just breathing in and I'm holding my breath. But he stopped her and he said, I understand that you prepared some documents. And my lawyer said, yes, we have these documents prepared. There's an order of protection from abuse, but he can come home if he does a 90 and 90. And you know why? Because there was going to be hope in my house. There had to be hope. I was not willing to live one more moment without hope. But I knew that there was going to be hope if he stepped into the rooms, into your arms, in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. And my husband will tell you as part of his story, when he stood there before the judge that day, he didn't know if he was going to say yes or if he was going to say no. He didn't know until the words came out of his mouth. And he said, I'll do it. And they had him sign the papers. And the judge said to me, he's got to do a 90 and 90, and I'm going to hold you in contempt of court if he doesn't do it. And my lawyer saw the, you know, and I was, you know, whoa, I'm an Al-Anon. <laughs> I can't do that. My sponsor will kill me. <laughs> and before I could say anything, the lawyer said, shh, quiet. She said, yes, your honor. And she said to me, go home and call your sponsor. Now, you know, when I was first in Al-Anon, that phone was like a million pound weight. I could not wait to get home. Again, there was no cell phones. I could not wait to get home to call my sponsor. So here we get into the car. He had gotten a ride down to the courthouse. So he and I and this little girl, stark raving, not not drinking, this poor little girl and me, we get in the car and we make like this 35-minute drive from town up to our house. <laughs> that was one of my skills. My pre-Alanon skills was driving like a bat out of hell. You know, I, I knew how to do that, and I was getting to that phone, boy. <laughs> I couldn't wait to get to that phone. I ran in that house. I picked up the phone. I called my sponsor. And she let me let it all out, and she said, left, right, breathe. Left, right, breathe. Just for today, just for this moment, you don't need to make that phone call. I never had to make that phone call. <laughs> A couple of years, a couple of months ago, March, he celebrated 25 years. And that little eight-year-old, who is now like 34, flew in from Arizona to be there. 
and he gave her his coin. <laughs> Beyond my wildest dreams? Oh, yeah. No, I had no idea. When I crawled into the rooms of Al-Anon to get him to stop drinking, to get Kathy to talk to me again, to see who was there, I had no idea. The gifts that awaited me, none, beyond my wildest dreams, I'm not even there yet. So um, I'm in recovery, and we have these four kids in five years, and I'm on the phone with my sponsor complaining, you know, I've got these four kids in five years, and, you know, I'm understaffed at best and <laughs> totally outnumbered. And my sponsor, <laughs> my sponsor says to me, um, Michelle, what do you think caused that? <laughs> Uh, she said other things, but I didn't hear anything. I was just like, oh, oh my God, you know. So we figured out what caused that. We don't do that anymore. <laughs> and I was speaking one time. You know, now God and, and recovery can infiltrate all, every dark nook and cranny if I'm willing to open the door. And that day on the phone with her, it opened that door to this sexual part of my history, the historical crap that I was dragging around, the wounds and the pain of having been an abused child, of having been a molested child, that I wasn't, I wasn't ready to talk to anybody about. Because one of the tools my mom taught me was just pretend it didn't happen and just don't think about it. So I was stuffing all of this stuff. That I, if I didn't know how to deal with it, it went in that backpack, and I got to you crawling. So that day on the phone um, opened up that part of my backpack. And um, I was speaking one time, and I told that part of my story, and I said, yeah, for a while my husband thought that I gave sex up for Lent, and he yelled up from the audience, Lent, I thought it was your New Year's resolution. <laughs> <laughs> but I let God into that aspect of my life for healing, and I wound up going through the steps on my sexual history. And when I got to my fifth step, I called my sponsor and I said, I really think that God is telling me to do my fifth step with my husband, not with you. And she said, oh, thank God. <laughs> <laughs> so I did my fifth step on sex with my husband, and it opened an incredible door of into me see. This is why, and this is what happened, and this is what's going on. And he has been such a part of my healing in that area of my life. I was at a, a district workshop a couple years into after all of that happened. Um, they had a spiritual speaker at the end of our, our district workshop, and she talked about having a prayer journal and tracking God and that God would answer you with a yes and a wait and a no, I've got something better for you. And I thought, well, you know, I'm out of the full-time job of tracking my husband, so let me see what God's doing in my life now. So I started to write things down and ask him for stuff. And how, my, my sponsor said, have some fun with that. So I wrote down desires of my heart, and I'm coming to understand as I get closer and closer to my higher power how he loves me the way that he loves me so thoroughly and completely. So I'm, quickly, this prayer journal becomes my miracle journal because, again, the veil continues to lift. The film it continues to come off. I see more and more evidence of how I'm bringing things to God and I'm getting answers. You know, I don't always like them, but um, I'm getting answers nonetheless. So, you know, I started out with little things like, you know, we're still poor. 
um, and I need a coffee table for the kids to do their homework on. So I want a, this ends up coffee table, and I want this one out of the magazine, and, you know, I want to go to Europe, and I want to take the kids to Disney. And, you know, before recovery, God was like my celestial bellhop. And I was mad at him because I'd give him direction, and he wouldn't do it. You know, I would really ask him to kill you. I really would. And one time um, I asked him to kill the people across the street. They were bad. They were drug dealers. Kill them. And they moved, and I was like, all right, that'll do. No, I'm so glad today, understanding and having compassion that God did not listen to me. You know, today I'm aligning my will with his instead of asking him to align it, his, whatever he does, you know, his will with mine. Um, it's working out a lot better that way. So, um, where was I? Um, my journal, thank you. All right, so a friend of ours in recovery who's well-propertied says, you know, his wife is redecorating the house and he's getting rid of this furniture and he has a coffee table can he bring it over? And I'm like, wow, look at that. I'm getting a coffee table. The kids will be able to do their homework in the living room and from the fireplace. This is so cool. But you know what I, what I discover with God is like I ask for this and I get this. It happens all the time because I limit God by my imagination. And you keep teaching me, don't do that. Don't limit him. You know, put it out there. So he shows up with this um, coffee table and it's the exact, this ends up coffee table. You know, is it odd? Is it God? Is it coincidence? Is it God incidence? I don't know, but I really like this coffee table. <laughs> so my nephew is stationed over in Germany, and um, my sister, my mother, my aunt, and my niece are flying over to go see him. And uh, my niece gets a teaching job at the last minute, and my mom calls me and says, we have this ticket fully paid. You want to go to Europe? Oh <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. All right, so, you know, you didn't kill him, but this is getting pretty good. <laughs> you know, and again, I, I'm coming to understand how God loves me and that he wants to give me the desires of my heart. You know? <sighs> so, Disney. Um, there's no way we're going to Disney, you know. And my husband's family had a family reunion in California, and we can't go. And one of his cousins, who's an executive for IBM, calls us and says, I have enough frequent flyer miles. Come to California, all six of you. So we go to Disneyland. And I'm pissed, because I wanted to go to Disney World. <laughs> My sponsor laughed too. <laughs> oh my God, just keep coming back. <laughs> so that, that little guy that I told you about that had the trach, um, he was three years old. He, he contracted a, a fairly relatively rare neurological disease called Guillain-Barre syndrome. And he had it pretty bad. And what that does, it's a, it's a virus and it attacks the peripheral nerve system of the body. And it starts at your feet and it works its way up as far as it's going to go and it paralyzes everything on, on its way. And for TJ, it worked all the way up his chest to his neck, 
up the side of one of his face, up the side of his face. So the only thing he had control of was one side. So he had no voice. His, his vocal cords were paralyzed. Um, he was on a respirator. He couldn't breathe on his own. And he could only cry or grimace on one side of his face. And um, my husband was actively drinking when this was going on. And we went down, and we, he was admitted to a hospital in Morristown, New Jersey, that didn't even have a, a, a little intensive care unit and only had an adult intensive care unit. Um, and what they basically do is try to keep you alive while this disease does what it needs to do with your body. Uh, and it was a really frightening time. This was our third child. We already had four. He was, he was our third. And he was just this roly-poly, beautiful little boy. You know, like, like they all are. Innocent and oh, just a cherub. And here he is in this great big bed, paralyzed. He can't move. And we were scared. And he was really, 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 really sick. And at one point... Um, Staying, we arranged it so that um, my family would watch the other kids during the day and I would go to the hospital and then I would go home at night and my husband, after working all day, would go and spend the night with TJ. So he was never alone. Our son was never alone. And I have heard other people in Alcoholics Anonymous testify that they have had to walk away from a child crying in the hospital so they wouldn't pick up a drink. And, I, and now I look in retrospect with such admiration that my husband actively drinking was able to keep it together long enough to go and spend the night with this little tiny dying boy in the hospital room. What a gift that was. What an amazing gift. But this little guy, he got well. He survived that disease, but what happens is it leaves your body ravaged. So as it leaves your body, you have no control and have to be totally rehabilitated. He had to learn to speak again, to swallow again, to sit up again, to potty train again, to walk, everything. And um, it turned out that he had developed scar tissue, which is why he had to be traked. Almost a year later, he was traked. So all the other kids are running around the house, and he's got this trach in place, and, you know, you have to be really careful. They let us bring him home. And I had to bring him back and forth for PT a couple of times a week. And I was online in, um, for the hospital cafeteria with him one day, with TJ one day, and the doctor said to me, you know, you don't believe in miracles. Please do. Because this little boy should not be alive. You know, here come the miracles. My husband is hes going to get sober. I'm in recovery. This little boy's life gets saved. Wow, God, you're so, wow. So I'm sitting on the couch with this little boy, and I'm petting his head one day, and all of the other kids are running around doing what they're doing. But we had this quiet moment, which was very rare in our house. And I'm petting his head, and I'm talking to him. And he never wanted to talk about what happened to him. He never wanted to look at the pictures in the wheelchair being strapped in or when he advanced to the walker or how we held him in the pool and he was learning how to kick his feet again, etc. He never wanted to go back and talk about any about that and anything about that. He was doing what I did as a kid. He was layering that stuff into his backpack. But we had confidence. I had confidence in my recovery, and I knew that I was going to be able to offer solutions to this little guy when he was ready to handle the reality of what he had been through. So he brought up, Mama, do you remember when I died? And I was really surprised because he never wanted to talk about it. 
And I said, yes. And he said, you know, Mama, when I died, I saw God. Now, this is a long, long time ago. It's much more popular now to hear about people having these experiences, but it wasn't back then. And I said, no, really? And he said, yeah, Mama. And he was all white and all love, just like you, Mama. And that little boy gave me such a gift that day because he introduced me to another aspect of my higher power. I was having trouble with step three. But it turned my will and my life over to the care of God. That kind of God, all white and all love, just like you, Mama. You know how we love our babies? We would die for them like that. That's the kind of love that God has for me. Maybe I can like turn over just this little piece to this kind of God of, of my new and coming understanding, unlearning what I was taught as a child. Um, I, I also learned about step three on the back of a Harley. My friend, I was really struggling with it, and um, my, my friend Robbie said, come for a ride with me on my bike, and I, and I had never been on the back of a motorcycle before, and I was really, really scared about it. And my sponsor said, it's an outstanding exercise for you doing step three, because you're going to be so powerless on the back of that bike, and you're just going to have to turn it all over to Robbie, who is a really great, safe driver. So I got on the back of this Harley, and he said to me before I got on the bike, he said, usually, you know, people either love this or they hate it. And by the time we got out of the parking lot, I was like, wee. <laughs> So that was a great lesson for me, too. And another great lesson was I was flying one time. Um, my husband and I were separated on the airplane, and I was next to this really, really chatty young lady um, who turned out to be a drug and alcohol counselor. I couldn't even get a word in edgewise to tell her who we were. And she's just chatting away, and um, the plane dropped, like hit an air pocket, and it dropped. And everybody was, like, screaming and hanging on, and she went, wee. <laughs> I want that. No, how cool is that? You know, my first thought was drunk. <laughs> but they're so much better at getting that. You know, I'm turning it over. I'm hitting my bottom. Take it, take it. I, I can't do this. Please help me. You know? So now when I'm on the plane, you know, I, I'm not always doing it. Sometimes my nails are in the chair. But, you know, I'm in my mind, I'm going, wee, wee. <laughs> You're powerless, wee. Another really cool example of the higher power in my life was um, our daughter Amanda, who had that seizure disorder, and uh, they were, it was just out of control. She was having she was the brightest of our four children, and we were watching her be consumed by this seizure disorder. And she wound up going from one of the brightest to severely and profoundly retarded. But we had moved in the meantime, and there was just this gap. Like I, it just didn't sound right. Like how was she? fine in New York, and now we're in Pennsylvania, and she's got this severe and profound rating. Something's just not quite meshing here. You know, it, it, the seizures are all over her brain. It's inoperable. There's nothing we can do. And we were getting early intervention at that point, and the director said to me, what's it going to take for you to accept this? And I thought about it. I love questions like that. I used to hate them because I didn't know what to do, and I needed you to tell me. I needed you to give me direction because I didn't have a clue. And I said, I need her doctor in New York to tell me that. So she said, well, why don't you do that? So we did. And when we went back to the doctor in New York, he said, no, they're wrong. There's like this microsecond where the seizures are starting, and we're going to do epilepsy surgery. And when they did, they found a brain tumor 
who knew, that had been there since she was born. And in the meantime, she's having all these seizures. My husband's working long distance. At this point, he's in recovery. But I'm just overwhelmed and overburdened. The kid with the trach, the kid with the seizures, you know, the, the kids who are affected by the family disease of alcoholism were struggling in recovery. My husband and I really still don't like each other at this point. And I lay across, I, I had, you know, all of us wives living up nowhere where our husbands are working down in the city, stranded in the snowstorm. We would all get together. The kids are playing together. And at that point, she had a seizure. And my kids knew that they were not allowed to yell for me unless it was a true emergency. So even when it was a seizure, Mama, Amanda's having a seizure. And it was one more time, and I used to try to, to bring her out of it and talk to her and pet her head, and she would struggle to come out of the seizure. I laid across the bed despondent, absolutely despondent, crying, God, I can't, I just, I can't do this, it's too much. And at that moment of despondency, I heard a voice. It was not an audible voice. It was neither male nor female, but it was just as clear as a bell. And the voice said to me, Amanda will be all right. And I felt the despondency melt, melt, melt away. And I felt this peace come over me. And I had the unmitigated gall to say to the voice that I knew was God, what do you mean all right? I mean, not like dead, like all right, seizure free, like all right, normal, like <laughs> what are we talking about here? <laughs> and I felt the terror and the despondency coming back up again. And I went, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And the voice said again, Amanda will be all right. And it was such an amazing and, and, and spiritual experience for me. I didn't tell anybody about it. Like, how do you articulate something like that? <laughs> you know, I went to a counselor at one point to see if that was going to be part of my recovery. And he said to me, do you hear voices? And I was like, oh. <laughs> I didn't think I did. You know, I thought it was the voice of God. It happened this one time. I don't know. What do you think? <laughs> and he said, no, I really think that was kind of a spiritual experience. I think you're okay. Um, and I needed that validation. But I didn't tell anybody about it, because how do you say something that's like that special? But eventually I did start to talk about it a little bit. And it turns out that other people have had experiences like that too. And I'm here to tell you today that that, that little girl who had that epilepsy surgery is one of the most all-rightest people I know. She is seizure-free. And with anybody who's brain injured, you know, the progress is kind of, you know, but it keeps going up if you keep giving them the right opportunity. And I had said to the neurosurgeon, what's the best thing we could do for her? And he said, have another baby. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> what else you got? You know, that's not happening. <laughs> but being the youngest of four, she just kept looking like she didn't know that there was anything wrong. She didn't know that she was different. So the other kids are swimming, she's swimming. And they would be like diving in and stuff, and she'd like have this little frog dive. She was 10 years old, and she's like diving like a frog. And, you know, she couldn't sit on a chair without being strapped in. And now she's got this little frog dive, you know? And I'm thinking, wow, you know, she's all right. And somebody said to me, I, no, I was, I was a little bit embarrassed because she was so childlike in her behavior. And, and I'm thinking this, and someone next to me said to me, wow, wouldn't it be great to just be a child forever like Amanda? Oh, what a different perspective. 
You know, I don't think about that because I measure everything but I, by what I think should be instead of what is. Again, God, align your will with mine instead of me with yours and letting me learn through the experiences, which is what I do now. However, you know, I can't limit God by my imagination. And that little girl grew up and wound up on the varsity swim team for year for for real you know she was like she was like the special olympic star people would ask her for her autograph her dive was picture perfect her strokes were beautiful and we recognized she didn't make it to state competition and in retrospect she never got out of the water winded she like didn't know you were supposed to be out of breath when you were competing and she was that good she learned to play the clarinet and the flute and she <laughs> She wound up um, playing for the symphony or- orchestra at East Stroudsburg University. <laughs> her dad calls her his hero. <laughs> she's a lot of people's hero. And today, she wound up getting a job at Walmart, and she's, like, determined. You know, she doesn't know she's not supposed to be like everybody else, and she's doing the do, and she's doing what she's supposed to do. She gets a job at Walmart stocking. She wants to be a cashier. We're like, you can't do that, the speech and language thing. She becomes a cashier. She meets one of the CSMs. They fall in love. Like, if you met her today, you would never know that she's... She's got like a learning disability title now, a label now. And you would not be able to know that. How awesome. God is just awesome. My husband and I were so broken. And my sponsor said to me, you know, not every relationship made in disease is meant to survive recovery. Nails went right in. You know, mine, mine, mine. You can't have them. I don't want them. But he's mine. (laughs) But we kept trying, and he's growing toward God in his recovery. I'm growing toward God in my recovery, and it's like this big triangle. And I'm here, and Kenny's here, and God is up here. And you can't help but grow closer together when you have the common goal. You just can't help it. And we're getting better and better, and we're learning to to speak kindly and sweetly to each other. So we're at the state convention um, in Pennsylvania, and I was really mad at the convention because they deviated from what they did year after year after year. And instead of having a Friday night AA speaker, they did this presentation on stepping stones, this slideshow presentation. And I'm like, oh, slideshow, and it's history, Ugh, boring. <laughs> and every time they show Lois and Bill, the person would, uh, who was narrating would say, and here's Lois and Bill on the motorcycle. Aren't they sweet? And here they are in front of the building. Aren't they sweet? And they're so sweet together. Look at, and I'm like, sweet, 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 sweet. Bing! I'm getting the message. God, I hear you. Kenny's supposed to be sweet to me. <laughs> I, can't, I can't wait until the meeting's over so I could tell him. <laughs> So the meeting's over, and I'm like, I got this wonderful epiphany. You know, you're supposed to be sweet to me. And he was like, you know. <laughs> now I'm rushing out to the payphone to report his behavior to my sponsor. And I get on the phone. I, I tell her tell her exactly what he did, and she get, lets me get all finishing. She goes, honey, the, the message was not his. It was yours. So then I salute her. <laughs> uh, she can't see me. I can get away with it. So now he's already on his way back to the dorm. I'm running to catch up to him. 
so that I can start being sweet to him. And I don't know about you guys, but when I, when I witness God removing a defect of character in cooperation with my will, my very strong will, sometimes it's like tiring. It's really tiring. And by the time we got back to the dorm, I wanted to throw up I, from being sweet. Like it was so hard. And, and you know what? <laughs> I, I'm like the first sweet thing out of my mouth and he's like being sweet back. Whoa. <laughs> Wow. And what happened for us as we continued to work and grow and believe in marriage and believe in family was like this marriage nirvana came for us. We got it. And we went from screaming fights six times a day to like six months. We couldn't even remember the last time we disappointed each other. And it got to the point where, is there any cheese left? You wanted cheese? Um, Oh, my God, I, I ate the cheese. I'm so sorry. Let me go get you cheese. Like, oh, you know, without effort on our part, we just grew together to become what I believe marriage is supposed to be, which is a piece of heaven on earth. Miracles, you know. I crawled into the rooms to get him to stop drinking, and he gives me myself and marriage nirvana. You know, we have good days and other days we grow, and 2011 was a real growing year for me. My husband and I were so happy. And our children got to witness active disease and active recovery. And that little girl who um, was so severely and profoundly affected by her seizure disorder and the tumor, um, she got herself into some relationships that were a little scary to her staff. And me and my husband, weren't, we weren't scared at all because we knew we had modeled for her what we wanted her to aspire to. And at one point, she was with this really sketchy guy, and um, she broke up with him. And she said to me, you know, Mom, um, it wasn't like you and Dad. It wasn't good enough. And she broke up with him. She had the dignity to make that decision all on, her, all on her own because of you guys. My oldest daughter got herself into some sticky situations. She wound up moving to Arizona, which we asked her not to do because you're just doing, sweetie, what we did. And please, you know, it's dealing with you. You deal with it because it's dealing with you. But she went out to Arizona, and we let her go because that's what she needed to do. And she called, and she was like, Mom. You know, she had hit a bottom. And I said, baby, I don't know what to tell you other than to go to Al-Anon. And she did. And you welcomed her and you hugged her. And she has given me permission to share with you that she shared at that first meeting, I'm here because I want what my mom's got. You know, kill me now. But in 2011, that man, that man of my dreams the man that I'm healing with and growing with and experiencing this amazing relationship with and having a blast with, had some scary symptoms and wound up being diagnosed with a brain tumor of his own. And it was a pituitary tumor, and it was very large, and it grew into his skull, and it was encapsulating his optic nerves, and it was a really dire diagnosis, but it was operable. And they went in through his nose to get the tumor, um, and they couldn't really make, they couldn't get it. So they had to do a craniotomy a couple of weeks later. And we knew that there was a chance of, I mean, brain surgery, that's not Mickey Mouse. That's some heavy-duty stuff. And I knew what it looked like from going through what we went through with our daughter. And I kind of knew what I was in for. And the woman who sits next to me at work, her husband had just died from a brain tumor the year before. So it was like right here in my face. 
but I also know what it's like to take care of myself, and he knows what it's like to take care of himself. So when you put out your arms, we didn't say, no thanks, we got it, we're good. We jumped into your arms, that God would scan. And that one set of footprints was when you carried us through that very difficult year. My sponsor used to say to me, why do you think you're in recovery? Well, you know, to get him to stop drinking. Oh, you know, because of needing an order of protection from abuse. Oh, because those four kids all became teenagers. We, you know, oh, my God, you know, that's why I'm in recovery. You know, and I don't really know why I'm in recovery other than my problems weren't my problems. My solutions were my problems. And you gave me this whole new set of life skills to live with and brightened up that really dark place that I was under the influence of the family disease and gave me a life beyond what I could ever imagine. But here we are, you know, and my husband's life is on the line. After the second surgery, he, he was declared legally blind. And my husband loved his job. He was the director of training in our correctional facility, and I knew he wasn't going to be able to go back unsighted. And I knew that his heart was going to break. So my, you know, my experience with God is that when tragedy strikes, his is the first heart to break. I believe that God does not take people. He welcomes them. I believe when I fall that God rushes over and scoops me up in his arms. I used to think that when I sinned, when I fell, that he distanced himself, that he was a punishing God. But that's not the kind of God that I understand today. The kind of God I understand today does for me what you do for me, what I do for my babies when they fall, rush over, scoop them up, hold them close, and offer them kisses and solutions. I was, um, I, a friend of mine lent me her GPS, and in the GPS I had every meeting in northern New Jersey plugged in. We were back in Morristown Memorial again. And in my miracle journal, I had put my relationship with my sister, which was badly broken. And I thought, you know, as I was tracking God's answers, I thought God's answer was no for my relationship with my sister. And when my husband was in the hospital, my sister offered me to come and stay with her. And knowing what it was like, knowing what it looked like for me to take care of myself, I got a good night's sleep, I ate right, I, I went to all of those meetings, and then I was up to fight the good fight for my husband when he was in the hospital. And I recognized on the periphery this growing relationship between me and my sister. And from blogging, rather than taking 100,000 phone calls every day because of who we are in our community, my sister got to know me in a safe way. And we were reconciled through that. Now, do I think that my husband was deathly ill so me and my sister could reconcile? Absolutely not. I think that tragedy strikes in the world today because of choices that we made. And sometimes we're the victims of other people's free will. I was the victim of someone else is disease, but when I shattered, God gave me the rooms of Al-Anon to glue me back together again. I used to think that powerlessness and surrender were losing. Today I know that they're freedom. I used to think that acceptance was approval, and today I know it's serenity and peace. I used to think that if I forgave you, I was supposed to jump back into relationship with you. And now I know that forgiveness snips the tie between us that's unhealthy. It gives us both freedom. But when you're ready to make an amends, reconciliation is possible. When my, my husband went into the hospital in January, he came home in August, and it was too soon. He experienced 
every terrible side effect that could happen. He had E. coli spinal meningitis from a cerebral spinal fluid leak. He had septic shock. He had adrenal failure, renal failure, bedside dialysis. And between January and May, it was right around his birthday, they said, we've done everything we can and we cannot save his life and bring the kids in to say goodbye. And I remember sitting outside of the hospital. We weren't sure if our younger two children were going to make it there before he passed away. And I had my oldest daughter and my oldest son next to me. And I was screaming in the parking lot, screaming in agony. I can feel the vastness of my emotions but not become enslaved to them. And I wasn't being enslaved. It was appropriate grief. And I don't, you know, our literature says don't beg your own harms. And I didn't want to say to God, save him. But my sponsor said to me, did you ask for a miracle? And I said, I have been granted so many miracles. I just don't feel right asking for one more. And she said, Michelle, ask for one more. So I said, well, God, it's me. And I really would rather he not die, but whatever, whatever, <laughs> just send me your arms to jump into. And I was outside, and I was, I was hysterical. And I remember people walking by and looking over, and I wasn't even embarrassed because that agony was an accurate reflection of the enormity of the love that I had in this marriage and the loss that I was experiencing and all of that. My son and my daughter did make it to say goodbye to their dad. And our youngest daughter held her dad's hand and said, Daddy, you can't die. You have to walk me down the aisle. <laughs> and we held each other and we cried together. Twenty-two people stayed over in the hospital with us that night. Me and my children, two of their friends, and the rest of them were you. because you are family. You know, we have family today who are friends, and we have friends who are family. And that's the strength of the fellowship. You guys are amazing. You're incredible. And I'm so honored to be associated with you. My husband wound up, you know, the next day, the, the neurosurgeon, <laughs> a priest walked in. He was getting a cup of coffee, and 22 people almost had a stroke, because we all thought he passed away. We weren't up there. And he was like, I'm just getting coffee. <laughs> The neurosurgeon came down the next morning with a grin from ear to ear. He said, I, I was wondering why you guys weren't in the ICU waiting room upstairs. You needed more room. Look at all these people who are here. And all 22 gathered around to hear what he said. And he said, we're like this much optimistic, just this much optimistic. And he wound up like, like, my God, you guys don't freaking die. It's incredible. You know, what, what strength you have. This passion, this bigger-than-life guy, just he wanted to live. And that, that, that zest that you give, the relationship with God. You know, I don't know if they had a conversation or not. They gave him so many drugs, we're not quite sure. Um, but after he got done not dying and started to live again, he was not my Kenny from before. You know, my sponsor and I talked about it at many different times at great length, you know, where did he go? What happened? He was with, through so much. He never picked up a drink or a drug, but he lost all of his recovery. He forgot who I was in our relationship. And I was like, oh, my God, are you kidding me? Like, here we go again, except now I have all these years in recovery. 
This is not a man that I would go on a date with, never mind take care of and sleep with. But when I try to move myself away after weeks of living with his very difficult behavior, in no uncertain terms, that intuition, that voice that's now clear between me and my higher power said, no, Michelle, you belong with this man. Stay with this man. You know, and here we go with the brain injury again. And sometimes he's lucid and sometimes he's not. And sometimes he's with me and sometimes he's not. But I continue to do what, what you've taught me to do. And when I have something to say to him, I sit knee to knee, hand in hand, eye to eye, heart to heart. And I speak from here. And I let him know where I'm coming from or how I feel. And when he, he used to say to me, you know, you're lying. That's not who we were. We never had this marriage nirvana thing. You're an effing liar. And I sat with him, and, and I started to describe who we were. And his face changed, and he said, I can't remember, but I can feel what you're saying, you know. I'm not going to limit God. I don't know where we're going to go. I don't know if, if we're going to stay together. I don't know if there's going to be restoration, but I trust I absolutely trust, and I know whatever it is, it's going to be beyond my wildest dreams because I don't limit God today. Thanks for letting me share.